Section 16 of the Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bob Neufeld. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1. The Mystery of Marie Roget, Part 4. But there are still other and stronger reasons for believing them so deposited than any which I have as yet urged. And now let me beg your notice to the highly artificial arrangement of the articles. On the upper stone lay a white petticoat, on the second a silk scarf. Scattered around were a parasol, gloves, and a pocket-handkerchief bearing the name Marie Rocher. Here is just such an arrangement as would naturally be made by a not over-acute person wishing to dispose the articles naturally. But it is by no means a really natural arrangement. I should rather have looked to see the things all lying on the ground and trampled underfoot. In the narrow limits of that bower it would have been scarcely possible that the petticoat and scarf should have retained a position upon the stones when subjected to the brushing to and fro of many struggling persons. There was evidence, it is said, of a struggle, and the earth was trampled, the bushes were broken, but the petticoat and the scarf were found deposited as if upon shells. The pieces of the frock torn out by the bushes were about three inches wide and six inches long. One part was the hem of the frock, and it had been mended. They looked like strips torn off. Here, inadvertently, the soleil has employed an exceedingly suspicious phrase. The pieces, as described, do indeed look like strips torn off, but purposely and by hand. It is one of the rarest of accidents that a piece is torn off from any garment such as is now in question by the agency of a thorn, from the very nature of such fabrics. A thorn or nail becoming entangled in them tears them rectangularly, divides them into two longitudinal rents at right angles with each other, and meeting at an apex where the thorn enters. But it is scarcely possible to conceive the piece torn off. I never so knew it, nor did you. To tear a piece off from such fabric, two distinct forces in different directions will be in almost every case required. If there be two edges to the fabric, if, for example, it be a pocket-handkerchief, and it is desired to tear from it a slip, then, and then only, will the one force serve the purpose. But in the present case, the question is of a dress presenting but one edge. To tear a piece from the interior, where no edge is presented, could only be effected by a miracle through the agency of thorns, and no one thorn could accomplish it. But, even where an edge is presented, two thorns will be necessary, operating, the one in two distinct directions, and the other in one. And this is the supposition that the edge is unhemmed. If hemmed, the matter is nearly out of the question. We thus see the numerous and great obstacles in the way of pieces being torn off through the simple agency of thorns. Yet we are required to believe not only that one piece, but that many have been so torn and one part, too, was the hem of the frock, 
another piece was part of the skirt, not the hem. That is to say, was torn completely out through the agency of thorns from the uncaged interior of the dress. These, I say, are things which one may well be pardoned for disbelieving. Yet, taken collectedly, they form, perhaps, less of a reasonable ground for suspicion than the one startling circumstance of the articles having been left in this thicket at all, by any murderers who had enough precaution to think of removing the corpse. You will not have apprehended me rightly, however, if you suppose it is my design to deny this thicket as the scene of the outrage. There might have been a wrong here, or more possibly an accident, at Madame de Luc's. But, in fact, this is the point of minor importance. We are not engaged in an attempt to discover the scene, nor to produce the perpetrators of the murder. What I have adduced, notwithstanding the minuteness with which I have adduced it, has been with the view, first, to show the folly of the positive and headlong assertions of Le Soleil, but secondly, and chiefly, to bring you, by the most natural route, to a further contemplation of the doubt whether this assassination has, or has not been, the work of a gang. We will resume this question by mere allusion to the revolting details of the surgeon examined at the request. It is only necessary to say that its published inferences, in regard to the number of ruffians, have been properly ridiculed as unjust and totally baseless by all the reputable anatomists of Paris. Not that the matter might not have been as inferred, but that there was no ground for the inference. Was there not much for another? Let us reflect now upon the traces of a struggle, and let me ask what these traces have been supposed to demonstrate. A gang. But do they not rather demonstrate the absence of a gang? What struggle could have taken place, what struggle so violent and so enduring as to have left its traces in all directions, between a weak and defenceless girl and the gang of ruffians imagined? The silent grasp of a few rough arms, and all would have been over. The victim must have been absolutely passive at their will. You will bear in mind that the arguments urged against the thicket as the scene are applicable, in chief part, only against it as the scene of an outrage committed by more than a single individual. If we imagine but one violator, we can conceive, and thus only conceive, the struggle of so violent and so obstinate a nature as to have left the traces apparent. And again, I have already mentioned the suspicion to be excited by the fact that the articles in question were suffered to remain at all in the thicket where discovered. It seems almost impossible that these evidences of guilt should have been accidentally left where found. There was sufficient presence of mind, it is supposed, to remove the corpse, and yet a more positive evidence than the corpse itself, whose features might have been quickly obliterated by decay, is allowed to lie conspicuously in the scene of the outrage. I allude to the handkerchief with the name of the deceased. If this was an accident, it was not the accident of a gang. We can imagine it only the accident of an individual. Let us see. An individual has committed the murder. He is alone with the ghost of the departed. He is appalled by what lies motionless before him. The fury of his passion is over, and there is abundant room in his heart for the natural awe of the deed. His is none of that confidence which the presence of numbers inevitably inspires. 
he is alone with the dead he trembles and is bewildered yet there is a necessity for disposing of the corpse he bears it through the river but leaves behind him the other evidences of guilt for it is difficult if not impossible to carry all the burden at once and it will be easy to return for what is left but in this toilsome journey to the water his fears redouble within him the sounds of life encompass his path a dozen times he hears or fancies the step of an observer even the very lights from the city bewilder him yet in time and by long and frequent pauses of deep agony he reaches the river's brink and disposes of his ghastly charge perhaps through the medium of a boat but now what treasure does the world hold what threat of vengeance could it hold out which would have power to urge the return of that lonely murderer over that toilsome and perilous path to the thicket and its blood-chilling recollections he returns not let the circumstances be what they may he could not return if he would his sole thought is immediate escape he turns his back forever upon these dreadful shrubberies and flees as from the wrath to come but how with a gang their number would have inspired them with confidence if indeed confidence is ever wanting in the breast of an errant blackguard and of errant blackguards alone are the supposed gangs ever constituted their number i say would have prevented the bewildering and unreasoning terror which i have imagined to paralyze the single man could we suppose an oversight in one or two or three this oversight would have been remedied by a fourth they would have left nothing behind them for their number would have enabled them to carry all at once there would have been no need of return consider now the circumstance that in the outer garment of the corpse when found a slip about a foot wide had been torn upward from the bottom hem to the waist wound three times round the waist and secured by a sort of hitch in the back this was done with the obvious design of affording a handle by which to carry the body but would any number of men have dreamed of resorting to such an expedient to three or four the limbs of the corpse would have afforded not only a sufficient but the best possible hold the device is that of a single individual and this brings us to the fact that between the thicket and the river the rails of the fences were found taken down and the ground bore evident traces of some heavy burden having been dragged along it but would a number of men have put themselves to the superfluous trouble of taking down a fence for the purpose of dragging through it a corpse which they might have lifted over any fence in an instant would a number of men have so dragged a corpse at all as to have left evident traces of the dragging and here we must refer to an observation of le commercial an observation upon which i have already in some measure commented a piece says this journal of one of the unfortunate girl's petticoats was torn out and tied under her chin around the back of her head probably to prevent screams this was done by fellows who had no pocket handkerchiefs i have before suggested that a genuine blackguard is never without a pocket handkerchief but it is not to this fact that i now especially advert that it was not through want of a handkerchief for the purpose imagined by le commerciel that this bandage was employed is rendered apparent by the handkerchief left in the thicket 
and that the object was not to prevent screams, appears also from the bandage having been employed in the preference to what would so much better have answered the purpose. But the language of the evidence speaks of the strip in question as found around the neck, fitting loosely, and secured with a hard knot. These words are sufficiently vague, but differ materially from those of Le Commerciel. The slip was eighteen inches wide, and therefore, although of muslin, would form a strong band when folded or rumpled longitudinally, and thus rumpled it was discovered. My inference is this. The solitary murderer, having borne the corpse for some distance, whether from the thicket or elsewhere, by means of the bandage hitched around its middle, found the weight in this mode of procedure too much for his strength. He resolved to drag the burthen. The evidence goes to show that it was dragged. With this object in view, it became necessary to attach something like a rope to one of the extremities. It could best be attached about the neck, where the head would prevent it slipping off. And now the murderer bethought him, unquestionably, of the bandage about the loins. He would have used this, but for its volition about the corpse, the hitch which embarrassed it, and the reflection that it had not been torn off from the garment. It was easier to tear a new slip from the petticoat. He tore it, made it fast about the neck, and so dragged his victim to the brink of the river. Such is bandage, only attainable with trouble and delay, and all but imperfectly answering its purpose, that this bandage was employed at all, demonstrates that the necessity for its employment sprang from circumstances arising at the period when the handkerchief was no longer attainable, that is to say, arising, as we have imagined, after quitting the thicket, if the thicket it was, and on the road between the thicket and the river. But the evidence, you will say, of Madame de Luc, points out especially to the presence of a gang in the vicinity of the thicket at or about the epoch of the murder. This I grant. I doubt if there were not a dozen gangs, such as described by Madame de Luc, in and about the vicinity of the Barrier du Roule, at or about the period of this tragedy. But the gang which has drawn upon itself this pointed animadversion, although the somewhat tardy and very suspicious evidence of Madame de Luc, is the only gang which is represented by that honest and scrupulous old lady as having eaten her cakes and swallowed her brandy without putting themselves to the trouble of making her payment. Et inc il est But what is the precise evidence of Madame de Luc? A gang of miscreants made their appearance, behaved boisterously, ate and drank without making payment, followed in the route of the young man and girl, returned to the inn about dusk, and recrossed the river as in great haste. Now, this great haste very possibly seemed greater haste in the eyes of Madame de Luc, since she dwelt lingeringly and lamentingly upon her violated cakes and ale, cakes and ale for which she might still have entertained a faint hope of compensation. Why, otherwise, since it was about dusk, should she make a point of the haste? It is no cause for wonder, surely, that even a gang of blackguards should make haste to go at home, when a wide river is to be crossed in small boats, when storm impends, and when night approaches. I say, approaches, for the night had not yet arrived. It was only about dusk that the indecent haste of these miscreants offended the sober eyes of Madame de Luc. 
but we are told that it was upon this very evening that madame de luc as well as her eldest son heard the screams of a female in the vicinity of the inn and in what words does madame de luc designate the period of the evening at which these screams were heard it was soon after dark she says but soon after dark is at least dark and about dusk is certainly daylight thus it is abundantly clear that the gang quitted the barrier du rule prior to the screams overheard by madame de luc and although in all the many reports of the evidence the relative expressions in question were distinctly and invariably employed just as i have employed them in this conversation with yourself no notice whatever of the gross discrepancy has as yet been taken by any of the public journals or by any of the myrmidons of police i shall add but one to the arguments against a gang but this one has to my own understanding at least a weight altogether irresistible under the circumstances of large reward offered and full pardon to any king's evidence it is not to be imagined for a moment that some member of a gang of low ruffians or of any body of men would not long ago have betrayed his accomplices each one of a gang so placed is not so much greedy of reward or anxious for escape as fearful of betrayal he betrays eagerly and early that he may not himself be betrayed that the secret has not been divulged is the very best of proof that it is in fact a secret the horrors of this dark deed are known only to one or two living human beings and to god let us sum up now the meagre yet certain fruits of our long analysis we have attained the idea either of a fatal accident under the roof of madame de luc or of a murder perpetrated in the thicket at the barrier du roule by a lover or at least by an intimate and secret associate of the deceased this associate is of swarthy complexion this complexion the hitch in the bandage and the sailor's knot with which the bonnet ribbon is tied points to a seaman his companionship with the deceased a gay but not an abject young girl designates him as above the grade of a common sailor here the well-written and urgent communications to the journals are much in the way of corroboration the circumstance of the first elopement as mentioned by le mercury tends to blend the idea of this seaman with that of the naval officer who is first known to have led the unfortunate into crime and here most fitly comes the consideration of the continued absence of him of the dark complexion let me pause to observe that the complexion of the man is dark and swarthy it was no common swarthiness which constituted the sole point of remembrance both as regards valence and madame de luc but why is this man absent was he murdered by the gang if so why are there only traces of the assassinated girl the scene of the two outrages will naturally be supposed identical and where is his corpse the assassins would most probably have disposed of both in the same way but it may be said that this man lives and is deterred from making himself known through dread of being charged with the murder this consideration might be supposed to operate upon him now at this late period since it has been given in evidence that he was seen with marie but it would have no force at the period of the deed 
the first impulse of an innocent man would have been to announce the outrage, and to aid in identifying the ruffians. This polity would have suggested he had been seen with the girl, he had crossed the river with her in an open ferry-boat. The denouncing of the assassins would have appeared, even to an idiot, the surest and sole means of relieving himself with suspicion. We cannot suppose him, on the night of the fatal Sunday, both innocent himself and incognizant of an outrage committed. Yet only under such circumstances is it possible to imagine that he would have failed, if alive, in the denouncements of the assassin. And what means are ours of attaining the truth? We shall find these means multiplying, and gathering distinctness as we proceed. Let us sift to the bottom this affair of the first elopement. Let us know the full history of the officer, with his present circumstances, and his whereabouts at the precise period of the murder. Let us carefully compare with each other the various communications sent to the evening paper, in which the object was to inculpate a gang. This done, let us compare these communications, both as regards style and manuscript with those sent to the morning paper at a previous period, and insisting so vehemently upon the guilt of Menet. And all this done, let us again compare these various communications with the known manuscripts of the officer. Let us endeavour to ascertain, by repeated questionings of Madame de Luc and her boys, as well as the omnibus driver, Valence, something more of the personal appearance and bearing of the man of dark complexion. Queries, skilfully directed, will not fail to elicit, from some of these parties, information on this particular point, or upon others, information which the parties themselves may not even be aware of possessing. And let us now trace the boat picked up by the bargeman on the morning of Monday the 23rd of June, and which was removed from the barge office, without the cognizance of the officer in attendance, and without the rudder, at some period prior to the discovery of the corpse. With a proper caution and perseverance, we shall infallibly trace this boat, for not only can the bargeman who picked it up identify it, but the rudder is at hand. The rudder of a sailboat would not have been abandoned without inquiry by anyone altogether at ease in heart. And here let me pause to insinuate a question. There was no advertisement of the picking up of this boat. It was silently taken to the barge office, and as silently removed but its owner or employer how happened he at so early a period as tuesday morning to be informed without the agency of advertisement of the locality of the boat taken up on monday unless we imagine some connection with the navy some personal permanent connection leading to cognizance of its minute it interests its petty local news in speaking of the lonely assassin dragging his burden to the shore I have already suggested the probability of his availing himself of a boat. Now we are to understand that Marie Rigée was precipitated from a boat. This would naturally have been the case. The corpse could not have been trusted to the shallow waters of the shore. The peculiar marks on the back and shoulders of the victim tell of the bottom ribs of a boat. That the body was found without weight is also corroborative of the idea. If thrown from the shore, a weight would have been attached. We can only account for its absence by supposing the murderer to have neglected the precaution of supplying himself with it before pushing off. In the act of consigning the corpse to the water, 
he would unquestionably have noticed his oversight, but then no remedy would have been at hand. Any risk would have been preferred to a return to the accursed shore. Having rid himself of his ghastly charge, the murderer would have hastened to the city. There, at some obscure wharf, he would have leaped on land. But the boat, would he have secured it? He would have been in too great haste for such things as securing a boat. Moreover, in fastening it to the wharf, he would have felt as if securing evidence against himself. His natural thought would have been to cast from him, as far as possible, all that had held connection with his crime. He would not only have fled from the wharf, but he would not have permitted the boat to remain. Assuredly he would have cast it adrift. Let us pursue our fancies. In the morning the wretch is stricken with unutterable horror at finding that the boat has been picked up, and detained at a locality which he is in the daily habit of frequenting, at a locality, perhaps, which his duty compels him to frequent. The next night, without daring to ask for the rudder, he removes it. Now, where is that rudderless boat? Let it be one of our first purposes to discover. With the first glimpse we obtain of it, the dawn of our success shall begin. This boat shall guide us with a rapidity which will surprise even ourselves to him who employed it in the midnight of the fatal Sabbath. Corroboration will rise upon corroboration, and the murderer will be traced. It will be understood that I speak of coincidences, and no more. What I have said above upon this topic must suffice. In my own heart there dwells no faith in Prater nature. The nature and its God are two. No man who thinks will deny that the latter, creating the former, can at will control and modify it, is also unquestionable. I say, at will, for the question is of will, and not, as the insanity of logic has assumed, of power. It is not that the deity cannot modify his laws, but that we insult him in imagining a possible necessity for modification. In their origins these laws were fashioned to embrace all contingencies which could lie in the future. With God all is now. I repeat, then, that I speak of these things only as coincidences. And farther, in what I relate, it will be seen that between the fate of the unhappy Mary Cecilia Rogers, as far as that fate is known, and the fate of one Marie Roger, up to a certain epoch in her history, there has existed a parallel in the contemplation of whose wonderful exactitude the reason becomes embarrassed. I say all this will be seen, but let it not for a moment be supposed that in proceeding with the sad narrative Marie from the epoch just mentioned, and in tracing to its denouement the mystery which enshrouded her, it is my covert design to hint at an extension of the parallel, or even to suggest that the measures adopted in Paris for the discovery of the assassin of the Grisette, or measures founded in any similar ratiocination, would produce any similar result. For, in respect to the latter branch of the supposition, it should be considered that the most trifling variation in the facts of the two cases might give rise to the most important miscalculations by diverting thoroughly the two courses of events very much as in arithmetic an error which in its own individuality may be inappreciable produces at length by dint of multiplication at all points of the process 
a result enormously at variance with truth. And in regard to the former branch, we must not fail to hold in view that the very calculus of probabilities to which I have referred forbids all idea of the extension of the parallel, forbids it with a positiveness strong and decided just in proportion as this parallel has already been long drawn and exact. This is one of those anomalous propositions which, seemingly appealing to thought altogether apart from the mathematical, is yet one which only the mathematician can fully entertain. Nothing, for example, is more difficult than to convince the merely general reader that the fact of sixes, having been thrown twice in succession by a player at dice, is sufficient cause for betting the largest odds that sixes will not be thrown in the third attempt. A suggestion to this effect is usually rejected by the intellect at once. It does not appear that the two throws which have been completed, and which lie now absolutely in the past, can have influence upon the throw which exists only in the future. The chance for throwing sixes seems to be precisely as it was at any ordinary time. That is to say, subject only to the influence of the various other throws which may be made by the dice. And this is a reflection which appears so exceedingly obvious that attempts to convert it are received more frequently with a derisive smile than with anything like respectful attention. The error here involved, a gross error redolent of mischief, I cannot pretend to expose within the limits assigned me at present, and with the philosophical it needs no exposure. It may be sufficient here to say that it forms one of an infinite series of mistakes which arise in the path of reason through our propensity for seeking truth in detail. End of the Mystery of Marie Roget Part 4